0: Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro, and we are very, very privileged to have what used to be a small boy, but is now a grown-up and very fabulous-looking person, and it's Aled Jones. Alan, welcome. I thought you were going
1: to say, who used to be thin, who is now fat. But, um, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. We're not going there, mate. We're not going there. I most certainly used to be a small boy, and uh, quite a lot of the country and the world still think of me as a, a 14-year-old for some reason. But, yeah, I'm officially 52.
0: Oh, Alid! but of all of us, because we've all moved on in our careers, and of all of us were once small people and up, but nobody seems to have joined their youth so successfully with who they are now than you, because you are now singing with yourself as a little boy. I know we're going to go back and talk about things, but this is the most extraordinary thing at the moment, isn't it?
1: It's mad, really. It's something that actually happened about five years ago for the first time. And I remember signing to Virgin Records and Richard Branson sort of turning around to me and saying, we don't have a clue how to sell your music, so we'll sell it like pop music. And they worked me like a pop musician. You know, I, I recorded and released 16 albums in four years as a kid. Oh, Good! God. which was amazing, really, you know, and enjoyed it unbelievably. And then one album didn't get released. My voice broke. It was an album of folk songs from England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. It was recorded onto a dat and an engineer somewhere said to my father, you know, Richard Branson has given you this album. We're not going to release it. Whatever you do, keep it somewhere warm. My father was an engineer at the time, so obviously thought about this and stuck it in the airing cupboard at home. And there it sat for almost 30 years. And one day when I was at home, my dad said, you know, you've got quite a few recordings in the airing cupboard. I was like, well, he's obviously been drinking here. Uh, far too much wine for dad. But, yeah, I've got, I've got a quarter-inch recording with the RPO of narrations I've done, all the different narrations from Tubby the Tuba to Peter and the Wolf to The Snowman, you name it. But also this dat I listened to it in the car with my musical director one night and started singing along with Eriskay Lovliltch which is a beautiful Scottish mm. song mm. and the voices just blended completely together. I don't know why it would surprise me because it's the same person but nothing had changed somewhat and I went to the, mm. the studio recorded that first album and you know it was probably one of my best-selling albums ever went to number 2 or 3 in the pop chart and now the new album is The finale of both voices coming together, you know, we found some footage I'd done in the 80s of a TV series that I'd forgotten about. Everyone had forgotten about. We managed to get the audio and we've been back to the studio and recorded with, we call him Little Aled.
0: Are you Big Aled?
1: I'm Big Aled Aled, and he's Little Aled. And honestly, (laughs) it's to start, I now have got used to it over the years. But the first time I did it live was in the Royal Albert Hall in a classic FM live and you know what that's like highly pressured Mm. lots of people and I stood there on that stage and listened to the young boy voice coming out first and it was as if somebody had rewound a tape because all the memories of those performances I've performed Mm. in the Albert Hall probably over 150 times and you know the first time when, when I was 11 and all those memories of the performances just came flooding back listening to that voice and and it's been a real an honour, I suppose, to do it. You know, to be able to do this miraculous thing where no one's ever done before. You know, singing with yourself at a different voice. So yeah, it's been it's been amazing. And and this new album is all about sort of repertoire that people may not know as well, like things like At the River. So there's quite a few sort of songs that I haven't tackled before. Mm.
2: It's uncanny, Alid. It, I had a listen, and it's uncanny how your two voices blend and contrast in At the River.
1: Yes, we'll gather by the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river, gather with the saints by the river.
2: Tell me, when did your voice break then? When you were 14?
1: No, I was much later. I actually stopped singing on my 16th birthday in Cardiff, where I recorded all my music with the same producers, a producer called Heaven Owen and Mervyn Williams. They used to be Head of Music in Wales, back in the day when all music came from Wales, really, uh, as far as the BBC was concerned. Mm. And we used to go to a church in Penarth, knock off an album, as they say, in no time at all. And we then celebrated by going for a Chinese in a Chinese restaurant in Cardiff. Uh, (laughs) My biggest worry was on my 16th birthday that I'd only recorded four songs. I decided there and then that I wanted to stop, that the voice didn't sound the same. I had a bit of a cold. I was getting to an age where it felt like I was on TVAM AM every other day explaining to Anne and Nick why my voice hadn't broken. And so I just decided <laughs> yeah. to, you know, go for lunch, not go back. And my biggest worry was that because I hadn't delivered the album, we wouldn't go for a Chinese. And um, unbeknownst to me, calls had been made and the place was full of everyone I'd worked with over the years. So it was a, a really nice oh, send-off. So, you know, I look, I look back on that time and people say, you know, what would it have been like if I was doing it now? And I think it would have been a lot more pressured. You know, my mum was a primary school teacher, my father an engineer, both retired now, and none of us knew what we were doing. So, and neither did mm. the record companies. Mm. You know, the sales for my second album was something like, you know, almost over a million. And you'd think now, you know, you're lucky if you sell sort of 10,000 physical sales. And, yeah. and back then it was just madness, really. But, you know, we just got on with it because <laughs> we knew no different.
2: Extraordinary. Did you have a good manager then? Did you pick up a manager along the way?
1: Yeah, very quickly, because my father found that being an engineer by day and then arguing with executives and record companies at night was not fun. You know, I think I was offered a box of Maltesers for my first album. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, he's only 11. Let's give him a new pair of trainers. That'll be fine, you know. Um, and, and very quickly, I actually, I was very lucky because I didn't go for a sort of showbiz kind of manager. I went with a very classical management company called Harrison Parrot. And, yeah. and yeah. I was looked after beautifully by them for the four years I was a boy soprano.
2: Brilliant. Brilliant. They're a top agency and they were always interested in young talent in the right way. Yes, There weren't that many agencies who were like that, actually, to be honest. And I have a lot of respect for them. Brilliant. But look, I'm fascinated, Aled. Were your parents musical? Was there music in the family when you were young?
1: I got told off by grandparents and stuff early on in interviews when I said there wasn't any music in the family. Okay, there were no professional singers or anything like that. But there was definite music in the family, be it, you know, uncles or great uncles singing in the pub at weekends, that stereotypical male voice choir thing where they'd all, you know, hit the pub after. Rehearsals. My great uncle was an opera agent, a very successful opera agent. He also worked for Ricordi music publishers back yeah. in the day. His name yeah. was Arthur Owen. He helped a lot of young musicians back in the day. And so, yeah, there was a lot of music. My, my parents, you know, they both enjoy music. My earliest memories were, mm-hmm. you know, waking up on a, a weekend and always hearing different music in the house, be it classical, you know, core classic opera, but also pop and everything as well. So, and as a child, I would probably be seen as quite freaky now, but I would find music in everything. So if my mother was drying Hmm. my hair when I was a a two-year-old or whatever, I'd find the notes in the hairdryer and sing along. Same with water. And I tend to do that now as well. You know, I will find kind of music in everything because it's in me I suppose. You and me kid. Yeah. <laughs> oh good I found a fellow nutter.
0: <laughs> Alan, <Aled, Well. laughs> can I take you right back to the to the very beginning because we only knew you as that heavenly voice in Walking in the Air. How were you chosen for that?
1: That was a complete fluke. Everyone thinks it's uh, it was one of the first things I did in my career but as a boy it was one of the last. I had recorded about 12 albums by the time Walking in the Air came about and I'm not the original voice on the cartoon. Toys R Us were launching in the UK in Cardiff. They were using the Raymond Briggs cartoon as their advert of the boy flying around the store. Um, They asked Howard Blake, the composer, you know, who should we get to record Walking in the Air? And he said, well, there's a kid at the moment He's number two in the pop charts just behind Bruce Springsteen. Let's get him. (laughs) And I'll I'll, I'll own up here and now to you that, um, you know, I was busy with school and uh, just being a kid and I only learned 30 seconds of walking in the air because that's all they needed for the ad. So I turned up in a studio in London, a studio I use all the time now. Um, I didn't realise for the first two years that it was where I recorded it. And John Altman, the producer, and I recorded it in probably about 30 minutes or something like that. It was easy. You know, it was just the chorus. And he said, well, we've got another four and a half hour session with the LSO. What are we going to do? And he said, well, let's record the whole song. So uh, a rather embarrassed red faced little Aled went,
0: I haven't learnt it.
1: So um, he stood round the piano with me and we learnt the whole song, thank God, and I recorded it there and then and and that was it. You know, that that went into the pop charts, it was top of the pops, all that kind of business. And then they put me on quite a few of the DVDs that were released after that on the cartoon as well. But, you know, I never expected it to to blow up the way it did and, and has continued to do every Christmas. It's mad, really.
2: It's become synonymous with Christmas. But the composition is really totally unforgettable. It starts with that unassuming xylophone and then those powerful string chords come through which contrast so beautifully with young Alid's treble voice.
0: Joanna here, Maestro Stephen Barlow and I want to hear from you, our wonderful listeners. Send us your classical music questions, queries and concerns through to hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'll get back to you on the programme. Thank you so much.
2: Forgive me for going back. Your early singing, was that in churches or choirs? Chorister? Were you a chorister?
1: Yeah, well, I was a singer in school. Primarily. And they have these things in Wales yeah. called estevods, where you compete in yeah. either, you know, soloists and stuff. And I, I'd win sometimes. I wouldn't win all the time. Mm-hmm. An aunt then died and left us a piano in her will. And I wanted to learn how to play Beatles songs on the piano. I was only nine at this point. And yeah. somebody suggested that the local choir master in Bangor Cathedral, near where I lived, should give me some lessons. Mm-hmm. I went along uh, one Friday evening after rehearsals and he promptly asked me to sing a few scales and then told me to leave the room i was stood outside thinking oh christ i'm so bad at singing he's not even going to teach me the piano but unbeknownst to me he was saying to my mother listen your kid is good enough to go to canterbury to kings in cambridge and and of course my mum being this sort of Northwellian school teacher was like he's not leaving home you know he's only 9 bless his heart and so we made a deal that i would join Bangor cathedral which at the time for me was the largest, most magnificent building ever. And it's only now in age I I realized the Bang Cathedral was just a glorified church, really. And on a good day, we'd have six boys either side, the and Cantorus. But it taught me how to sing, how to stand, how to breathe, you know. And there was a lady, dear lady in the congregation there who was forever nagging my mum and dad to record my voice. And they never did anything about it. So Incredible, really. She wrote to a local recording company, without us knowing, saying there's a boy soprano in Bang Cathedral whose voice you should record for posterity before it breaks. And so they did. And that album was on there's sale that. in St. David's Hall. BBC producer from London needed a chorister to take part in a huge performance of Jetsa with Dame Emma Kirkby, um, some wonderful, <laughs> wonderful singers, <laughs> Sir Neville Mariner. They chose me yeah. and that was it.
2: Brilliant. I share this bit of our uh, musical education. I was a chorister at Canterbury. Right, yeah, a proper um, cathedral. Oh, no, 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 no. It's an indispensable part of my life because to be treated like a professional at that young age is perfection. Kids absolutely lap it up there's clear direction there's improvement there's a feeling of achievement and all along the way you're learning about ensemble you're learning about phrasing you're learning about different composers
1: and also, and also blending with other people you know you're hearing other voices yeah. that you have to sound you know as one yeah um, yeah i wouldn't be a singer now if i hadn't been a chorister and to be honest with you mm-hmm. if people ask me Do you have any regrets about what happened as a kid? My only regret probably would be because it was a fabulous time. Well, there's two. One is forgetting your words to memory in a Royal Variety, which I don't recommend. Uh, I made them up, again, chorus to background. But the other was because of my success as a boy soprano, when I then went to the Royal Academy of Music to study, I couldn't Mm. really be in a choir or everywhere I went, people would listen to the new voice to compare it to the young one. And, And, you know... I yeah. missed those times when I was at the cathedral and, A, singing the best music in the world in probably the greatest acoustics mm. in the world as well. And, you know, being part of that history, which has been there since the dawn of time, really, singing this music, I really miss that to this day.
0: Alan, did you record or did you sing at the time in the cathedral things like Allegri's Miserere and things like that?
1: And also Oh for the Wings of a Dove, you know, that was the the main yes. one that I'd heard mm. Ernest Luff sing back in the, in the 40s, one of the first recordings ever with that gorgeous crackle.
2: Ernest Love's version of Felix Mendelssohn's Hear My Prayer for the Wings of a Dove is something which is unforgettable. His voice is elegant and rounded, yet it has this deeply mournful quality as well.
1: I never, ever dreamt that I would be a recording artist or a singer, a professional singer back then. You know, I'd listen to a mixture of Pavarotti, Ernest Luff, and probably Stuart Burroughs, the lyrical Welsh tenor, who I thought was, oh, was wonderful, awesome.
2: Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful tenor. There's such a tradition, isn't there, of Welsh tenors. The English tenor is, is a completely different beast. They always say that the Welsh tenors have both lyricism and a heroic quality. Take Stuart Burrow's version of Mivanwi by Joseph Parry, for example. Ah my digged a room of Anui, unslayed with luggage on thee. Ah, three, the itinerary.
1: I always sort of aspired to be kind of a a tenor, but it didn't quite make it. You know, I'm a high baritone who can still sing the top notes, but, you know, I had a decision to make at the Royal Academy of Music, and I talked about regrets earlier on. They're all coming out now. I trained with a a Welsh (laughs) tenor, and they became a moment because my countertenor, even now, sounds exactly as I did as a boy. So I I could have definitely made a career as a countertenor. I'll never forget that James Bowman came into one of my lessons and yeah. just stopped in his tracks and went, you have to be a countertenor. You'd be the greatest countertenor in the world. It's like, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. And Ken Bowen, who is my singing teacher, you know, proper Welsh tenor. I never forget him saying, yeah. don't be ridiculous. Countertenors never get the girls. And as, a, <laughs> as, a, as an 18-year-old who didn't really have a clue about anything, I just went, OK, Ken, I'll be a baritone. <laughs> <laughs> And that was What it. a pity,
2: because in those days, I mean, Jimmy Bowman was one of my greatest heroes and a good friend. In those days, there were not very many countertenors.
1: You could count them so, on one hand.
2: Exactly. And now, of course, they are doing ten times more in the operatic world. Yeah. And the Americans have come on with this idea of a male soprano. Yeah. It's everywhere now.
1: It, it um, is. And, and I, I've, always to... got, I've always got this kind of a dream ambition, really, that I would ring up the Wigmore Hall one day and book the place for a year yeah. from today, for instance, and then for a year just train solidly as a countertenor, and then put on this yeah. concert and see if I can pull it off. But I'm getting too old to be doing that sort of stuff now. Really, oh, but No,
2: no, 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 no. no. W- don't leave it too late. No, exactly. Maybe wait, wait till I'm in
1: my 80s.
0: Alad, what is it like looking back at your little boy, your childhood boy who's kept alive so vividly for you, If you hadn't had that rocketing success, if you were just an extremely good and successful chorister, do you think you would have continued a musical career. Were you planning to be a singer anyway?
1: No, I wasn't planning to do anything. And and maybe this is, you know, stupidity throughout my life, really. Even when The Voice broke, I had no plans. You know, I'd been introduced to media quite a bit then. There was always this running joke that I wanted to be an interviewer like Terry Wogan. And Terry was a dear friend of mine. He was my radio dad and I was his radio son. And I was very lucky to learn from him for years and years. But, you know, I've never planned, really. You know, I did what I did. I sang because I loved it. I, if I wasn't singing in the Albert Hall, I'd be singing in the shower. So, And that that's the only thing I said to myself when my voice broke, really, that, you know, nothing had really changed. I would still sing. Mm. Whether I'd sing publicly mm. or not was in, not in my hands. So I've been very lucky yeah. that, you know, now I have, I have a career where, I do a bit of everything, maybe not a master at any of them, but I enjoy the variety of of the stuff I do. And sometimes, you know, I do too much television, which means I don't do the singing. And as I get older, I realise that the thing that does give me the greatest pleasure is the singing by Miles. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you think children are losing the joy of singing Is it taught as much in schools or is it only special schools? No, I I
1: think it's crazy. You know, I look back at my primary school and every morning was started with assembly where we'd sing not just religious hymns, we'd sing music. You know, we'd sing passages from early musical theatre or but predominantly hymns. And I just think it's such a shame, really. You know, my children growing up didn't really have that. They both love music, thankfully. I I think it's how the arts and music in particular are just seen as sort of a second... Wrong kind of you know a, a thing. It's not as important as maths and English and uh, geography. I think it's scandalous to be honest with you. I I really do, mm-hmm. because where would we be without the arts? And my goodness me, if COVID didn't teach us one thing, it was that that's what we need. That's yes. what we need in our lives. You know,
0: and that's what we miss. That's what we miss. If we're not, they say that there's no such thing as an unhappy member of a choir because singing together just tends to lift you out of yourself for a start. You're part of a group. And they found that actually the physical nature of singing cures you of woes and ills. It Absolutely. Tends to and also look, how, look you know, how,
1: how they've proved how it works with dementia and things like that as well. Mm. You know, all of our memories are linked to music. So much of my life is pinpointed by music and what was happening at that time. Not just the music I performed, but the music I was listening to as well. So, yeah, it's, it's crazy. If I had my way, we'd be starting every day with a song. Yes. Yeah.
2: Tell me, Ali, there's been such a strong feeling of culture in every way with Eisteddfod and male voice choirs and brass bands. We English are just not like that. We don't have these wonderful competitions. I mean, there's a fantastic one in Dublin, too. They still have this culture of young musicians and young writers, and it's all applauded and talked about. Are you losing this for young children in Wales no, as we're not. well as no, we're not. we are here?
1: No, we're not. And also the choral scene, I think now, not just in Wales, but everywhere around the world is booming because, as Joanna said, yeah. people are realising that actually, you know, it's not just about belting out Jerusalem or whatever. It's also about the sense of community and family you get from choirs as well. It's about going for a pint afterwards or whatever. But also the fact that singing makes you feel good. So choirs are springing up everywhere. In Wales now, you know, if you just look at Only Men Allowed and Now Only Boys Allowed and all these young choirs that are coming up. But I think that's happening all over the world. I think also in England, well, probably one of the best as far as brass bands are concerned. I can't believe that came out of my mouth. But, um, yeah, feel free to take that out. Um, but, um, but but equally, the, the choral scene I think in England is incredible now as well, and and young people do want to sing. know mm-hmm. what I love about you know if I look at my children's MP3 or whatever, it's all on their phone. The music they listen to is everything from Rachmaninoff to Eminem. You know, whereas when I was a kid, mm-hmm. you either listened to pop or classical. And if you listened to classical, you were a bit odd. I don't know if you remember. What was it? was it called R-Price where you used to go and buy records, the record store in the yes. 80s? Well, if you remember, the classical floor was always like floor three or four and there was always glass yeah. around it as if you were listening to something that you really yeah. shouldn't be listening to. You know, it was only the nerds yeah. that went in there and they needed glass to surround them to have this pure sound, whereas now my kids will have everything on, on their MP3s. So I think that's brilliant, you know, that young kids are just listening to whatever is good.
0: As a singer, do you have particular composers, old or, I mean, gone or present, whose music you like, whose music seems to suit or your voice loves more than others?
1: There's one in particular, John Island. Mm-hmm. it was a uh, a, a, uh. a composer that I sang loads of you see I went to the Royal Academy of Music way too early really and they were really kind to me there because I remember getting a first in my first year exam and then it sort of dropped to a two one or something in the second year and the second year person said his brain knows exactly what to do with the song but his voice as yet hasn't caught up with his brain because my voice was so young uh. as a as an adult singer um so it's taken many, many years. I remember Stuart Burrow saying to me on a documentary we did that my voice wouldn't be mature until I was sort of mid-40s because I was singing Boy Soprano yep. so late. And he, you know what? He was bloody right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I yeah, struggled yeah, yeah. on through my 30s and I still enjoyed it. But now, you know, in the last sort of 10 years, the enjoyment I get from singing is double what I did in the early days mm-hmm. when I was singing as a man. And so John Island was amazing when I was at college because it's not... Too taxing on the voice. Michael Head, I loved. Roger Quilter, I loved. Mm-hmm. All these sort of English song, but also you know you can't get better than Schubert for a song, and and also I've always mm-hmm. for some reason had a, a massive affinity with Handel's music. Having sung you know yeah. Jephtha back in the day, I was also lucky to be part of the crazy recording with Christopher Hogwood of Athaliah. Special, very special. Where I was sandwiched mm-hmm. in between uh, Dame Emma Kirkby and Joan Sutherland. You know, it d- doesn't get better than that, really. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Alid, we're going to have to come to an end of this conversation, but we want to talk to you for a million more years. Would you like to choose something that, that you would like us to play out this little episode?
1: Well, let's have something from the new album, I suppose. Maybe Sea Fever.
2: Sea Fever, with all its swashbuckling sense of heroism. What a lovely choice to end the podcast on.
0: Seas again, for lonely sea and the sky. And all I ask is a toss, and a star to see her. And the waves kick and the winds, and a white still shaking.
1: And it's not really performed that often anymore either, but. You know, I'm a big fan of this sort of music that I did as a kid. And as I said, you know, when you record 16 albums in four years, then you kind of run out of repertoire. So so I've recorded it all.
2: And before we finish entirely, I cannot tell you how excited i am at the thought of you doing a countertenor recital at wigmore hall
1: okay okay well if you promise to be there i'll do it okay there we go (laughs) yeah no it's a done deal (laughs) okay you're on
0: (laughs) alan thank you so very much for being with us oh it's it's lovely lovely to catch up
1: with you both thanks for inviting me a real pleasure
0: you've been listening to joanna and the maestro a cup and nozzle burning bright productions and bauer media show it's presented by me joanna lumley and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge, and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton, and mix and mastering is by David Blore. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson, and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK.
1: In this episode, you heard the following music, At the River written by John Ireland and performed by Alad Jones. The publisher was Boozy and Hawks, and the record label was a Decca Records release. Walking in the Air, written by Howard Blake and performed by Allard Jones. The publisher was Chester Music, and the record label was Now That's What I Call Music. Hear My Prayer, O Wings of a Dove, written by Felix Mendelssohn and performed by Ernest Luff. The record label was Naxos. Mifanwe, written by Joseph Parry, and performed by Stuart Burroughs. The publisher was Diak Diakdau Sein. The record label was Zane. Sea Fever, written by John Ireland and John Maysfield, and performed by Allard Jones. The publisher was Stainer & Bell, Limited, and the record label was a Decca Records release.